Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Amukwe Siamo Meatball and Spaghetti Podcast. I'm Mike Fiorito, your host. Today we have with us Christina Morocco, whose work, Adio Love Monster, has just been published by Amukwe Siamo. It's a fabulous book, and we're going to talk about it today. Her work has appeared in many, many publications across the country. She works in memoir, short story, long fiction, and poetry. Christina lives outside of Chicago, where she teaches creative writing and other courses at Elgin Community College. Please join me in welcoming Christina. Christina, welcome. Welcome to the Meatball and Spaghetti podcast, the Abunque Siamo Meatball and Spaghetti podcast. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Mike? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I think we're both... uh, so busy, which is wonderful with uh, with projects and uh, so forth. So this is this is your your debut novel, and I have to say, uh, it's a wonderful novel. Um, I I I loved the writing, the lyricism of the writing, the stories, the humor, um, the ugliness of the characters. Um, <laughs> and and the truth is, I read the book too fast. I really did. I. I I was working other assignments and I had Oracle commitments, um, but I really did fall in love with the book. Um, Great. And so congratulations. It's, uh, it, 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 it's just, you know, and I'm not blowing smoke. It, uh, it's a fabulous read and on many levels, entertaining, uh, informative, it hits you hard. Um, you know, one, one thing I was wanted to ask you because I kind of, sometimes I, camouflage my people too. Uh, were you concerned that people might recognize themselves or in the book, people you know, your family? Are you talking about my disclaimer at the front, at the front of the book? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's a tricky business, right? Uh, everything we, we know, everything we imagine even is it's filtered through what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've observed, but we're not sure that we've observed everything completely accurately. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say, I would stick with my disclaimer and say, these are not actual people, these are characters, but but certainly, you know, there was a little back and forth. uh, Do I want to write this as fiction? Do I want to write this as nonfiction? How do I kind of honor these neighborhoods and these people? And, you know, I, I landed on, we, we find a fictitious place, we have fictitious characters, uh, but these characters are doing things and experiencing things and feeling things that I know that real people, real people yeah. felt. Yeah, I mean, and you're, you're, you were, you know, it's, it, I, I write fiction and sometimes I'll, like you said, I draw from things that have happened, but I always feel I have the the latitude to fictionalize anything, draw from reality, but then exaggerate that reality. Um, but did you, or, or have people yet read the book that that would know these circumstances and some of these stories and say, oh, there's a kernel of truth in there? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I draw from the neighborhoods that both of my parents grew up in, and, and they're two different neighborhoods. One is outside of Chicago and one is inside of Chicago. Um, and 
I had readers in a, in a group, a reader's group, and we, and we talked about the story and it wasn't particularly an Italian American readers group, but it was really, really helpful. And then before I published it, the last person to read it, and she'd been holding out because, you know, she, she didn't want to read it yet was my mom. So, uh, you know, I had to have my mom read it for, uh, I guess, accuracy to tone, to time, to people. And then now my dad has just finished it after it was published. And right. you know, he's sure he recognizes certain people. He's sure he recognizes himself. You know, uh, yeah. I'm not sure that he's right or wrong. But um, but I yeah. think what I would say is that, you know, no matter how old we get, our, our parents, you know, we're always looking, I think, uh, to represent our ancestors in the larger scope. And uh, for my parents to re read a piece of writing that I've created at this point, as they're getting quite elderly, and to say, hey, this feels like where I grew up, this feels like the people that I knew, it, mm. you know, um, yes, I want to people, other people to read the book. Yes, I want the, the book to be on bookshelves everywhere. Uh, but at the same time, nothing will beat, I think, having my parents read it and, and saying, mm. yeah, this, this feels real. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, the expression, the, the universal is found in the particular. And uh, I mean, these are very particular stories. I, I may have missed it. And um, but why the title uh, Adio Love Monster? Did uh, I miss that? That's the last story as well in the collection. And um, that's the passing. Well, I don't want to give away too much, but let's say that that that's that is the matriarch's passing uh, that occurs in that story and a lot of other things as well. And so it sort of um, sums it up as that sort of what you were thinking. Yeah, it does. And it also, I think, sums up in an era, a kind of a neighborhood uh, commune that occurred in certain places at certain times where grandparents would live in one house and cousins would live across the street. And, and, you know, there was just a lot of family in a very close proximity, um, first and second generation immigrants from Italy, but also immigrants from other places and people, mm -hmm. um, rubbing off against each other in a lot mm. of ways, right. Picking up, not just Americanisms, but the Italians picking up Germanisms and the, um, you know, the, the kids having the influence of, of many kind of ethnic cultures along with this overarching, you know, Americana that they were living in. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, so as much as that last story bids farewell to a particular character, I think it also bids farewell to just a particular nuanced time and vibe in space um, mm, that yeah. we don't want to forget existed. Yeah. Um, you know, where my mother grew up, there was a lot of uh, family all around. Um, I didn't have that experience. I didn't, our family was not in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I could see just from the stories that they tell that she's told, the kind of closeness and and I've captured some of those stories, but it wasn't my direct experience. Um, I think it'd be great. Maybe you could read something, uh, give readers a taste of what they could expect if you have something prepared to, to read. Sure. Um, 
I've got a, a couple things I was thinking of. And um, I think, let's see here. You know, I think I'm going to go with something really, really simple. And I'm just going to start with the first chapter or the first paragraph of the first chapter of the book, which introduces this matriarch character, uh, Giuseppe Millefiore. And the, uh, the chapter here is called A Professional Mourner's Birthday Party. <laughs> Giuseppe Millefiore's bottom lip pooched out like the spout of a chipped fountain in some Sicilian courtyard chiseled into being long before people became so lazy in the head, before they understood life only in dull absolutes of good and bad, young and old, sinner and saint. Giuseppe had been made when the sacred and the profane still rode the same horse. Hers was a lip made for kissing everything, from broken fingers and the tender heads of newborns to the cheek of a corpse and the hem of a priest's frock. A thin brown stream trickled from this pooched lip into a rivulet that ran down her chin and finally seeped into her quilted housecoat, then to her silk undershirt, and finally to her skin. It was the juice of snuff, a delightful product she'd used for decades, but which now, somehow, sometimes, caused her to dribble like a grasshopper. And yet, she sat regally, before her half-open living room window, catching the breeze. Her features and her skin pulled over them were resilient enough to carry old age with apparent indifference. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's quite a character. Um, and, you know, remnants of uh, a, a lot of, she's very familiar. What I really liked about her character too is your introduction of uh, her, the use of sorcery. Um, and it's something um, there was a story and it was, it's in Call Me Guido that one of uh, my aunt or uncle or someone put a statue in the windowsill to punish it because they prayed to the statue and the statue didn't deliver. So they put it on the windowsill where it would get rained on and birds, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I thought that was, I, I liked that you, you took this, this kind of folk tradition and it had a cosmic feel. And I, I, I feel it's an unexplored enough uh, uh, theme in uh, Italian-American and Southern, Ita Southern Italian-American literature. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, um, I would love to expand on that. And you, you'll have to stop me because uh, yeah. my dissertation was on the evil eye in Italian-American literature. Uh -huh. So this is one of my uh, passions within I think within the um, the sphere that I'm writing, a lot of times we talk about this as a superstition, and I'm so glad you didn't term it that way. Um, this idea of envy and the vibrations of envy causing us real problems um, are no more ridiculous, I think, than when you walk into a room after someone's had an argument and you can kind of feel the, you know, the stress in the air. Sure. Um, people were trying so hard to survive uh, in Sicily, in the Mezzogiorno, and to understand the world around them, which was often really difficult to navigate and, and quite brutal. So belief systems like the evil eye, like, um, you know, 
the Strega kind of culture rose up and, and answered a lot of those questions for people. And they also incorporated, you know, Catholicism, or other religions, basically whatever sure. was there, you know, if it could be useful, use it. And if it's not working, you know, um, as sure. you point out with the statue, you know, like teach it a yeah. lesson, make it get to work because there's things that need to be done and things that need to be protected. So this main character is very much of that mindset, yet she's also very much about becoming American. Um, mm -hmm. She embraces the new country at the same time that she holds tight to uh, to some of these really ancient, ancient beliefs. And she, um, now I'm going to make sure I pronounce it correctly. It's a Sicilian term. Um, Trefice is a, it's a professional mourner. And yeah. uh, she becomes really a professional mourner. Yeah. yeah. And this is something that is taken from, from the reality of my mother's family. And, um, you know, I think, I think quite beautiful in itself. Yeah, and I, I, I loved, there's, a, I don't remember the author's name just yet. Um, it's a, a Thousand Camels in the Courtyard is the name of the book. And um, he was asked, his wife was, they were living, I think, in, in North Africa. And his wife died from some involvement in sorcery. And he was asked by an interviewer, do you believe in sorcery? He said, it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of avoidance. Um, and it, it's... I think there's a lot of, that's a whole other discussion, but yeah, I think, you know, we make magic manifest in our lives in the simplest ways and in ways that we all, uh, God bless you when you sneeze and in little, little mm -hmm. bitty ways, when you really examine it, uh, we're so, you know, scientific in our notions. And yet, you know, we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate and we get, you know, Easter baskets and there's something to these things. Precisely. And for these people, um, you know, anything that could protect their families and, uh, you know, ensure safety into the next generation, potentially, that uh, it was definitely worth a try. So I really tried to kind of um, include that, but not draw too much attention to it because it would have been a really normal part of this character's life. And so I tried to weave it into the book in a way that um, kind of was a suspension of disbelief. You know, this is right. just, just the way the way that she, this particular character, thought and um, things she felt that she could do for other people. I mean, you know, thinking things makes it so sometimes. Mm -hmm. I love this uh, this quote, uh, page 16, a smell of milk and sweat and lemon trees of eternity. Giuseppe twisted her hands in her lap and forbade herself to cry for her mother. For crying would disturb her mother in the spirit world, and she would not do that. And I love those, those delicious uh, little tidbits. Uh, um, and I, I love that Giuseppe, you know, she, she kind of doesn't give a shit. You know, <laughs> she, she sort of watches everything. Uh, you know, she, she understands when uh, the English evades her. Um, but she's she's wise. She's definitely wise, and she's observing, and and everyone knows that she's observing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's always got her eye out. Um, 
and so she's, you know, she's observing, she's protecting, she's still learning too, you know, up until the end, she's learning from uh, her daughters-in-law, she's learning from the hard knocks of life still, you know, when the first story opens, she's got a big lesson to learn, and she's always already an older woman, um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I think like all of us, uh, she's, She's meeting the challenges kind of as best she can, but she's also tough. She's a sure. tough old bird, uh, Giuseppe Millefiore. Yeah, well, she sure is. And I love the little tidbits, like the folkloric details that the boys sit over the buckets of garlic to prevent worms. And, you know, uh, it's interesting because I, I've read a book, uh, maybe we've talked about it, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and so she's a botanist and she's mm-hmm. uh, an, a Potawatomi uh, indigenous scientist, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she talks about how these, uh, these folk traditions, uh, ecological folk traditions, have scientific merit. And they were looked over because they don't quite fit the way at some points in time and, you know, even in the present. Uh, so I, I thought that uh, does does garlic help when when you have worn? I mean, maybe it well, does. Well, right? I mean the <laughs> the um, the wisdom is that if you have the worms and you sit over the bucket of garlic, that the worms will come out because of the smell of the garlic. That is. Well, maybe there's something chemical. Say. Yeah, uh, it could be. It could be. We'd have to um, we'd have to test it, but. Um, yeah, it, it's something that I heard from both sides of the family, which, you know, lived in disparate areas. But this was kind of the um, the at home cure. And I think worms back in the that time period that we're talking about that she's referring back to were pretty common, pretty yeah. common thing that people were trying to get rid of frequently. Right. So, you know, there were things like that. There's um, it's not in the book, but uh they would sometimes take a, a diaper with urine on it and rub it on the baby's tongue to kill thrush. Something about the acid in the urine may have actually been curing mm-hmm. thrush. Um, so they used what they had and over, you know, eons, they came up with things that were good, were good enough because it was the absence of, of modern medicine. Sure. La via vecchia. You know, yes. I, in my in my opinion, uh, in my humble opinion, the marriage of you know good hard science with um, um, with wisdom traditions is is probably the where the direction things are best because even science is a moving target. We know things at this point, but then we make a new discovery and uh, and mm-hmm. so on. I, I'm sure the urine on the diaper worked. And I'm sure that the garlic worked um, to prevent worms. So it had it had scientific validity. Maybe it wasn't in the scientific community and all of that kind of thing. Um, just to change a little gears, you, mm-hmm. you talked about, um, so the professional mourner, mm-hmm. and I, I found that really fascinating. Um, why do you think they needed professional mourners? I think, so this is just my opinion. Um, I think that 
you had you had widows who needed a profession and there were only so many things that culturally they were going to be able to to do out in the world right so they did embroidery they did um, piecework they did uh things like professional mourner, um, maybe midwifery, uh, you know, it depends on the family and, and it depends on, um, on the need. So I think that, that it, it filled a need for uh, income, you know, because these professional mourners were, were paid. Um, I also always think about, you know, the Irish and Keening and, and, and what that provides, right? This kind of mourning together through song, through um, real strong display of emotion, almost like theater, right? Mm. Um, sending the person off with something extra special. If we look at American um, funereal practice today, it's, it's very uh, farmed out, you know, to others, we're not washing bodies in the home. We're not, um, we're not waking in the home. There's, there's a lot that happens elsewhere, but then so much of it happened in the house. So much of the preparation happened in the house. So much of the mourning happened in the house. And, um, I think it was just more of a hands on everybody around sort of thing. And, you know, my guess is it may have been healthier. Because there yeah. was a huge surge of, of grief and these professional mourners um, really brought it to, you know, this kind of sustained crescendo. Mm. And um, what else was I going to say about that? There was something else that I wanted to hit on about that. So mm. that's a, that, well, I've lost it, Mike. <laughs> Well, that's okay. That's a, I, if you wouldn't mind that last mm -hmm. paragraph on on page twenty seven. I'm mm -hmm. trying to find it. I love that last paragraph, and uh, if you wouldn't mind reading it, the just the little tiny one there at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, okay. that, that one. And then that won't give away who's. Uh... As much as you think you want to read. Got it. I'll just go with the little one. Giuseppe did not sit with the professional mourners now, of course. No, now she sat in the front row where family always sits. And when the casket was closed, she wailed more loudly than she had ever wailed before, both eyes open. Her tears, they wouldn't stop. Yeah, beautiful. And one thing I really love is at the end of your, like the chapters, you always end on a home run. You you have great ending sentences. Um, it's you. Sometimes people spill it all out in the beginning, um, but you you meter your writing and the the ending. You know, I won't say you save your last for best. You save your best for last, but it's very evenly distributed. Uh, so bravo! It, it it kind of like I said. I I kind of was expecting that we would be doing this uh, earlier. Um, and But I zipped through it. And then I was like, oh man, I got this thing to do. I've got this thing to do. So you kind of lured me in. You know, you, uh, <laughs> you, did, a, you did a magic trick on me. Well, thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really important to me that these stories end 
with a strong note uh, because it is chronological and because we're never we're never going back to that moment again. Um, and I want those moments to kind of ring out like a bell at the end of chapters, some more, some less. Uh, but that's that's pretty intentional there. Mm -hmm. And um, because as a reader, it works for me, too. So that's kind of how I was uh, drawn to. Yeah to doing that. But also I think one of the things you said when you were introducing me was that, you know, these characters, there's an ugliness. Um, and I love that because there is. Uh, and I, I very much want there to be an ugliness because we are all beautiful and ugly at the same time. And I think that that big, that brush stroke, those big brush strokes really kind of, kind of show that there's, I don't think there's a good character <laughs> in this set of stories. I don't think there's a truly bad character either, but mm. I also don't think they're that they're dull in middle of the road. They just, <laughs> right. they, a, lot of, know, a lot of misogynistic men, you yeah. know, a lot of uh, uh, the female characters are sort of uh, uh, jockeying for, you know, power and as the men are. Uh, mm -hmm. The men, it was interesting to see the men um, because it's so damn true of the time and maybe even now. And so, but the men excluding the women, the men having different, uh, they, had, they have a whole different protocol they can follow. And what happens on, you know, his, uh, his uh, bachelor party night and what happens on hers and how different that is. Um, one thing that I think is very important, we've talked about this, and you do have, it's an Italian-American novel, but it is beyond that. It's a, you, these are universal stories. These could be anyone. And you have other people in here as well. Mm -hmm. You have other Germans and Polish, or someone thinks they're German, but they're Polish. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, to... Do you, because oftentimes it seems that uh, only Italian Americans read Italian American books, uh, which is kind of a shame. Um, how do you, you know, do you expect people that are not Italian American? While yes, you have inclusion of of other uh, people. Chicago is a big city with a diverse mm -hmm. population. Chicago area. Uh, um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think this is a book for everybody, and I really do mean that um i like the idea that you know s italian american characters and italian american writer um develop stories that are for everybody um, why shouldn't they <laughs> right exactly why shouldn't they it, it doesn't it's i don't think it calls for a niche and um i you know, obviously appreciate all readers who come to the story. But I think, yeah, I think there's a, a universality about the characters. Um, there's so much in here about time and um, <clears throat> historical changes. And just, I think people trying to figure out who they are in a new space as generations really change from each other, uh, but mm -hmm. yet remain, you know, so linked um, you know, I do think, I do think that it's just, it's, it is a story for, for mm -hmm. all readers. 
Um, yeah. I mean, Tolstoy is for everyone. And I hear mm -hmm. Tolstoy. I hear, you know, the family kind of the knot of family problems and things. I also hear Dostoevsky in your, your inner voice. Um, you had this great way of going through characters and you, and I realized, oh, I'm in that person's mind now. Yeah. Now I'm in like Joseph Conrad does in, in the secret agent. I think it is going through different minds and you, you don't realize until you pay attention and you say, wow, that was a good trick. You know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see that magic happen. Um, so yeah, any, any comment on that? Yeah, I think part of that is just from the method of, of writing. Um, and, you know, let me just say up front, it's, there are a lot of revisions, a lot of revisions. I'm a revisionary writer. So I start with the story and then, you know, I have to work it for six years <laughs> until it all comes <laughs> together. But that said, I feel like when I write characters like this, and I've got another set of stories I'm working on that's set in Wales of all places, I really almost... It's almost like a trance state. I really get myself into the mind and body of that character as much as, as possible and, and look around the room and see what's there with them. And I think that that is part of what you're hearing there is mm -hmm. a human mind that just happens to be mine when I'm writing that is actually in the space and in the time as, mu you know, as much as I can do of that, of that person, of that character. Yeah. And I yeah. think I'm glad to hear that that works. Oh, it did. It did. And I, you know, and I, and it was, I, as I was, as I had that epiphany myself in reading it, I thought, so, you know, these are universal stories that obviously you're well read and you've read a lot and you could see you're not imitating, but we're all learning from other, from predecessor, uh, from mm -hmm. other literature that we've read. Um, so, you know, you had said, uh, interesting that you said, uh, uh, I know your husband is from the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, I, maybe, you know, in closing, you could tell us a little bit about something about what you're working on, um, you know, why whales? <laughs> and mm -hmm. are we going to wait six years or 12 years or? <laughs> <laughs> so, um yeah, I, I have quite a few manuscripts that need to be revised and edited. Uh -huh. And the whale, whales is what's on my, my um, plate right now. It's um, interlocked short stories, but they're set over a large span of time in a small town in Wales, North Wales. And um, they're actually told from the perspective of the dead. So hmm. it's something different, something I've been working on for again a very long time and been working with a welsh editor who's been oh, really? you know helping me make sure that i get phrases correct and then i'm working in you know welsh word welsh words in history properly but they're really stories about people again they're really mm, stories sure. about relationships and um what sums up a life you know and what what a person might think summed up their life so that is the uh, that's the next one. Wish me luck on it, cause uh, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready for it to um, send it off. You know, yeah, yeah, for it to get grow legs and walk out into the world. Yeah, well, that's great. So, 
uh, Adio Love Monster is, you know, I think I got the copy that I'm holding right now before it actually published, but it is available. It's available. Mm -hmm. How can people find it? And how can people find you? Okay. So I do have a writer's webpage, which my son has graciously helped me to build. And you can just uh, look at writer Christina Morocco and you can, uh, that's M-A-R-R-O-C-C-O. Apparently there are a thousand different ways to spell my last name, but yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the one. Uh, and also the book is available on Amazon. And if you prefer to shop at your local bookseller, Ingram Sparks has it. Your bookseller can order copies directly through Ingram Sparks and you mm -hmm. can support your independent booksellers in that way, which is something that I'm very much in favor of. Well, great. I, uh, Christina, it's a great uh, debut novel. Uh, I really love it. And um, I hope people will read it. And I'm really proud to be published along Vunque Siamo with you. Um, and we're looking forward to more. So you, you know, you got to get out there and do get get more stuff out there so we can read it. <laughs> I wanted to read the whole book aloud tonight. Um, yeah, I will. I'm going to get out there. I'm, I'm going to, you know, promote this book. And uh, I just hope as many people read it as possible, because I think that um, I think it goes into the nooks and crannies of of humanity a little bit. And uh, and I think it teaches us. I learn when I read it still. I, I had to make a character list tonight. I was like, how many characters are in here? Yeah, what if yeah. he asked me about somebody I forgot right. about? I know what you mean. No, I, I know what you mean. It is, it is a lot. It is a, it is a, it, 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 it's a, a kind of a life. Uh, and it's like the Bible or, you know, with a lot of characters. Uh, so yeah, I can understand that why you would have to do that. <laughs> right. Um, but anyway, well, good luck, and uh, thank you so much for being on uh, the Evonque Siamo uh, Meatball and Spaghetti program, and we're looking more for you, and uh, we'll be seeing and talking to each other. So thank you again, Christina. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.